Good morning, everyone. I trust that you are having a wonderful 4th of July weekend. Uh, we are grateful uh, to be in this country where we have such religious freedom and are able to uh, worship the Lord in keeping with our consciences. This morning we are in a passage of scripture known as the Ark Narrative. The Ark Narrative covers chapters 4, 5, and 6 in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, the Holman Old Testament commentaries refer to this study as a study in archaeology, spelled A-R-K-E-O-L-O-G-Y. I thought that's kind of clever, uh, and it's a study of the Ark of the Covenant. In chapter 4, the Ark is captured. In chapter 5, the Ark is defended by God, and in chapter 6, the Ark is returned to Israel. The essence of today's study is the danger of symbol over substance. And uh, this quote comes from the Holman Bible Commentary, and it states, and I quote, religious symbols can be a powerful testimony to someone's faith, but such symbols can also be abused and misunderstood. The Israelites misunderstood the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was the symbol of God's presence with his people. The Ark was not God, nor could the Israelites manipulate God or guarantee his presence by moving the Ark wherever they pleased, end quote. The passage before us then emphasizes the narrative of the Ark of the Covenant and provides us with a powerful lesson regarding symbol over substance. The key verse is 1 Samuel 4.13, where it states, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told him the news, all the city cried out. So we want to look at this capturing of the ark of God and uh, the lessons to be derived therefrom. And we start with the background. The Israelites go to battle with the Philistines. It appears that the uh, Israelites are the aggressor in the battle in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. It says, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. It would appear that this occasion of the Philistines uh, fighting with the Israelites is a matter of the Israelites seeking to throw off the oppression of the Philistines. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 9, we have the leader of the Philistine army exhorting his troops, and he says this, take courage and be men, O Philistines. Now these words, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So that appears what the issue is. Israelites are under the slavery of the Philistines and the Israelites are trying to rid themselves of that slavery. The Israelites, however, suffer a great defeat in verse 2. The Philistines drew up and lined against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines. So the Israelites are conquered or defeated by the Philistines. So now the Israelite leaders ask a very important question upon the defeat, and that is, why did God defeat Israel? the Israelites. Notice verse 3. 
And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Apparently, the Israelites had not sought the Lord's direction regarding going to battle with the Philistines. They simply assumed that God is going to be on their side and God is going to grant them a victory. However, when they're defeated, they ask the very significant question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now that is a very wise question, for it recognizes not the power of the Philistines, but the fact that God had not fought for them. That God had actually helped the Philistines rather than helping the Israelites. So they asked the question, why? Why hadn't God helped the Israelites? Why did God defeat them? Unfortunately, however, they did not seek an answer to the question. They did not ask Samuel as to why God had defeated the nation of Israel. They did not ask God directly. They did not pray. They did not seek his direction. They did not seek his guidance. Instead, they simply jumped to a conclusion. That is, they thought that they were beaten because the Ark of the Covenant was not with them. They did not attribute their loss to God's displeasure of their worship and their sacrifices, as was described in chapter 2. Now, as we've been working our way through 1 Samuel, we noticed that the worship of the Israelites was corrupt. The offering of their sacrifices was displeasing to God. And God had rebuked Eli for his son's behavior and for the way in which the sacrifices were being offered. So when we get to chapter 4, Israel is under God's displeasure. But rather than repent, they seek to manipulate God into helping them. The Israelites expect that the mere presence of the ark will secure their victory over the Philistines. For if you look at verse 3, the second half of the verse, it states, Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. They were placing their faith not ultimately in God, but in the ark. And in these 22 verses, the ark is mentioned 12 times. The events of this chapter are far different from chapter 7, where the Israelites have a victory over the Philistines. In chapter 7, they are under the direction of Samuel. The people confess their sins, seek the Lord's help, win the battle, and there is no mention of the ark at all in association with that victory. But not so the case here. The people send for the Ark of the Covenant and it was brought to the battle. Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. They failed, however, to respect the Ark in the manner in which they treated it. This failure to respect the uh, Ark is typified in Hophni and Phinehas' presence in accompanying the Ark. Remember, it is Hophni and Phinehas who had belittled the worship of God and the sacrifices. They were described in chapter 2 as worthless men who did not believe in God. They had no fear of God. They did not know God. So this 
failure, as I say, is typified in Hophdian Finnish's presence in the end of verse 4. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Lange's commentary states the following, and I quote, They, that is the Israelites, assume that the Lord and the Ark are inseparably connected, and that they can obtain his help against the foe, of which they recognize their need, only by taking the Ark along with them into battle. They connected the expected help, essentially, with a material vessel, Instead of bowing and living pure faith before the Lord, of whose revealing presence it was only a symbol, and crying to him for his help. This is a heathenish feature in the religious life of the Israelites, and shows their faith was obscured by superstition. There being no trace here of earnest self-examination with the question whether the cause of the defeat might not lie in God's holiness and justice, thus revealing itself against their sins. Rhodius, therefore, well remarks, it is vain that they trust in God when they are not purged from their sins. The Israelites rejoice when the Ark of the Covenant was brought to the battle. Verse 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. They are elated. Now they feel that the victory is assured. Certainly, now they're going to be delivered since the ark is on the battlefield. They believe if they trotted out the ark, then God would protect them and give them the victory. But unfortunately, they were mistaken. Next, we see that the enemy was afraid when the ark was brought into the camp, verses 6 and 7. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a god has come into the camp. And they said, woe unto us, for nothing like this has happened before. Now, the Philistines know dangerously little about the God of Israel. Dangerously little, meaning that they did know enough, but they didn't know enough to really help them or secure their faith. They knew enough to be afraid, for they knew to some extent what God had done in the past and delivering the Israelites from the Egyptians. Verse 8. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. However, these statements reveal that they really did not know anything about the personal God of the Israelites. Uh, they did not know that he was indeed the sovereign God and one God. Notice verse 8. For they state, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods, plural. These are the gods, plural, who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. 
And so when the Ark of the Covenant comes into the battlefield, the Philistines attribute the Ark to a god. A god has come into the camp. And the Ark of the Covenant was one god among many gods as the Philistines viewed the worship of Israel. So they did not understand who the God of Israel really was. These did not know who God was. Uh, I'm going to be drawing some uh, comparisons between uh, what takes place in this passage to some of the things that are going on even in the United States today. And in America, we have, in many instances, a vestige of remembrance of God as to what he has done in the past, but there is being lost a real understanding of the person and nature of the true and living God. The Philistines go to war despite their fear, verse 9. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slave to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So they go out to battle, and lo and behold, the Philistines defeat the Israelites. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. Those who did not die in the battle run for their lives. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought, Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. So now we want to look at the consequences of the defeat. What happens as a result of Israel's defeat? Well, first, many of the families of Israel suffered greatly. If you look at the end of verse 10, it states, And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. In the first battle, they had lost 4,000 soldiers. In this second battle that they were confident in and the Ark of the Covenant was present in this battle, they lose 30,000 soldiers. The defeat is seven times as worse as was the original defeat. So many families knew heartache and misery and suffering as a result of so many casualties and death. Secondly, the house of Eli was destroyed as God had said through the man of God and through Samuel. All that God had said concerning the priesthood and the family of Eli in chapters 2 and 3 come to fulfillment in chapter 4. First, Eli's son dies. And we noted in chapter 2 that God said he was going to take their lives. And so in chapter 4, verse 11, we have the fulfillment. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Not only do Hophni and Phinehas die, but Eli himself dies. Let me give you chapters 4, verses 12 through 18, to give you the context. After the battle, chapter 12, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day. With his clothes torn, 
with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. When the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as the, he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. So Eli dies. And then Phineas' wife dies in 1 Samuel chapter 4, 19 through 22. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of the God was captured and her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Uh, the word Ichabod means the glory has departed. And then the third consequence, after the deaths of so many, after the purging of the family of Eli, the Ark of the Covenant is captured and taken away. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 11. And the Ark of God was captured. And the Ark of God was captured. It is the capturing of the Ark that is ultimately to be the focus of our attention. For as I stated in chapters 4, 5, and 6, it's all about the ark of God. So as we focus upon this ark being captured, the first thing we want to note is that Eli was anxiously awaiting to see what would come of the ark. When the children of Israel had sent for the ark and brought it out to the battlefield, we see what Eli's response was in verse 13. It says, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching. He was waiting for some kind of report. And then it says this, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. He was concerned that the children of Israel had brought the ark to the battlefield. Eli did not think that was a wise move. Eli did not think that was the right thing to do. Eli was fearful. Not because he didn't trust in God, but he had an inkling as to what the Israelites were up to. Eli was right to be concerned, for indeed, the ark was captured and taken from the nation of Israel. Eli's death is directly associated with the capturing of the ark. 
For if you notice in verses 17 and 18, it says, He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Now verse 18. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. So his death is directly associated with this news that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured. This was a demonstration of God's judgment, if you will, the coming to fruition of all that God had said. This was judgment upon Eli, and it was judgment upon the nation of Israel. And Phineas's wife is most concerned about the capture of the Ark. Phineas's wife is grieved, of course, by the death of her husband, brother-in-law, and father-in-law. If you look at verse 21, it states, and she, that's Phineas's wife, we don't even know her name, uh, Phineas's wife uh, named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. So she is stressed over the capture of the ark, her father-in-law's death, and her husband's death. But just so that we understand this passage correctly, there is a reiteration in verse 22 that what she is referring to when she says that the glory of God has departed, she's referring to the ark of God. Notice verse 22. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So it is not all three uh, elements. It's not that her father-in-law had died and her husband had died and the ark was captured. It is primarily this reality that the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured. Next week, we're going to see how God defends the Ark of the Covenant. But this morning, I asked a simple question, what are we to learn from such a passage as this? At first reading, this might seem entirely foreign to us, with very little application. After all, we don't have an Ark. We don't carry it out into battle. And so uh, what in the world does any of this mean to us today? Well, it's true we do not have an ark. But does that mean is there nothing for us to learn? We must always be aware of the danger of a symbol replacing substance in the exercise of our faith. Uh, Israel failed to look at the condition of their religious faith and practices when they went and set for the ark. We must take a hard look at the religious faith in America today, just as the Israelites failed to see how far they were from God, I think that we fail to understand how Christianity in America is far away from God as a whole.
The Israelites lost a battle to the Philistines, and we are losing the battle for the religious soul of America. Let me give you some examples. According to LifeWay Research, in 2015, 75% of Americans said that they were Christians. Now that is understanding the word Christian in the very broadest sense in which one can use it. That would include Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, all kinds of other groups that certainly we would not view as part of the people of God. In 2019, just four years later, that number dropped by 10 percentage points. Now, 65% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. Of the 65% who say they are Christians, only 25% would identify themselves as evangelicals. So you can see that there is a very small segment of people in America today that would view themselves as evangelical Christians. What is very sobering is if we stay on the same trajectory that we are on, in just eight short years, less than half of Americans are going to identify themselves as Christians of any sort at all including all the cults that would be associated with Christianity, including Jehovah's Witnesses, including the Mormons, less than 50% of Americans would even view themselves as Christian in the broadest sense of that term. In our text, there was a symbol of Israel's spiritual decline, namely the way that they used and responded to the Ark of the Covenant. In like manner, there is a symbol of the spiritual decline in America that uh, we can relate to in the way in which the Bible is being used and viewed. As Eli trembled for the ark, I tremble for the scriptures. I tremble that we are going to lose the scriptures in the United States of America and their significance. Why do I say that? Well, three reasons. First, I tremble because the Bible, like the ark, is becoming a mere symbol. What I'm about to say is not a political statement, but rather a statement about the state of affairs regarding faith in America. It is merely illustrative of a cultural phenomenon. I could not fail to see a comparison between the people's response when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the camp with people's response to the Bible when it was displayed in public. People shouted when the Ark was brought into the camp. Many people rejoiced when the president held up the Bible in front of a church. Now, don't get hung up on politics. A few days later, Governor Cuomo carried a Bible into a press conference and read a few passages from it. So I'm not making a political statement. I'm not talking about a particular party. 
I'm not addressing politics at all. So please listen to what I'm saying and don't dismiss it. I'm talking about Christianity today and the role of the Bible. Let me give you a few statistics on how Americans view the Bible and use the Bible in our society. According to the American Bible Society, 87% of Americans have a Bible in their home. In fact, they average three Bibles in their home. LifeWay did research and uh, a study on Americans and the Bible, for which I'm going to be drawing a number of statistics, but let me just give you their conclusion up front. And that is, quote, Americans are fond of the Bible, but don't actually read it. Americans are fond of the Bible, but they don't actually read it. Uh, They venerate it. They say good things about it, but they don't read it. They don't use it. According to Barna Research Group, 48% of Americans are Bible users which means, of course, 52% of Americans don't use the Bible. But before you think that, well, 48% is pretty good, let me give you the definition that uh, the Barna Research Group used for using the Bible. Bible users, quote, that is, they engage with the Bible on their own by using, listening to, watching, praying, or using Bible text or content in any format other than a church at least three or four times a year. So that is saying that if a person refers to the Bible, either in their prayers, in their conversation, in looking up a Bible verse, or just flipping the Bible open, whatever interaction, if a person has four interactions a year, they're considered a Bible user. Only 48% of Americans met that criteria. Of just referring to the Bible in some way over a period of a year, in four separate instances. I tremble because not only is the Bible becoming a symbol that is venerated, but not really used, I tremble because the message of the Bible is being lost. The vast majority of Americans do not know what the Bible says, only what others say about it. And therefore, all kinds of absurd behaviors and ideas are being seen as taught in the scriptures. Just as the Philistines knew something about the Israelites and Egypt and being delivered, so many Americans know something about the Bible and about God and his help of people. But they don't know the specifics, they don't know the details. They don't know the reality. As we think of the issues of our day, 
whether it be coronavirus, social justice, equality, law and order, all peoples on every side have leaders that will evoke the Bible as being supportive of their position. And so people today have no idea what the Bible really says. And all kinds of off-the-wall ideas are associated with the scriptures and people do not know better. But as difficult and as hard and as frightening as that is, what I am most concerned with is in particular the gospel message of the Bible is being lost. The gospel message of the Bible is being lost. The gospel is even being lost among evangelicals. Those who profess to be born again, those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the 26% of the 65% of people in America who call themselves Christians. So let's look at this 26%. And what do they say about the gospel? Quoting again, this time from the Pew Research Study, 2019, it says this. Millennials are less likely to believe that Jesus is the path to heaven than are other generations. Among millennials who have made a personal commitment to Jesus, only 56% say they believe they will go to heaven because they confessed their sins and accepted Jesus as their Savior. So of those people who profess to have confessed their sins and accept Jesus as their Savior, slightly over half say that's why they're going to go to heaven. The rest believe that they're going to go to heaven simply because God is a good God, God is a gracious God, God loves everybody, and everybody's going to heaven. That is among evangelicals who profess to have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, only half of them believe that that is necessary in order to be saved. That means the Bible's message is being lost. Thirdly, I tremble that with the Bible being lost, people's understanding of God is being lost. Remember that the Philistines initially trembled and they were afraid. They thought that they were in danger because the Ark of the Covenant had been lost. People are not afraid of dying today. People are not afraid that they are going to be lost. For, as I just said, even half of evangelical Christians do not believe that people are going to be lost 
who do not accept Jesus as their Savior. So there has been this corrupted view of God in which he is not holy, he is not just, he is not righteous, and that everyone is going to be ushered into his presence. So what do people view about God today? Only 64% of Americans responded that they are convinced that there is a God. Period. Any kind of God. Whether that be the God of the Bible, whether that be Allah, whether that be you name it. Whatever concept you have of a God, only 64% of Americans say that they're convinced that there's any God at all. 26% of Americans in 2019 identify themselves as either agnostic or atheist. That is up 10 percentage points from just four years ago. Remember I said that the number of people who associated with Christianity, that dropped 10 points? Where did those 10 points go? Answer, not to other religions, not to other groups, but it went to people saying that they did not believe in any God at all. That's 26% of all Americans. I think it's absolutely necessary that we be aware of where we are in this day and age in which we live. I think many Christians are unaware of the spiritual decline that is taking place in the United States of America. We have been fooled by the religiosity that is around us. Remember, Israel didn't stop making sacrifices. Israel did not stop going to the temple. And Israel paraded the ark out, but they were in great spiritual decline. And so we can be easily uh, confused about the spiritual state of America. For example, 90% of Americans celebrate Christmas. So you see people at Christmas time, and, and uh, they're putting up decorations, and uh, they may be even putting uh, nativity scenes out, all kinds of things. 90% of Americans celebrate Christmas. That's a high number. And so we can take great solace in that. Except that in our country, there's a debate whether or not you should even say Merry Christmas to someone, or rather, should you say Happy Holidays. For only 46% of Americans celebrate Christmas in association with a religious holiday. 54% of Americans understand Christmas as simply a cultural event. It's what we do on December 25th. It's tradition. But have no real understanding 
of what Christmas is all about. That's the majority of Americans. The Israelites thought all was well. They were offering sacrifices, they had priests, and most importantly, they had the ark. We have churches, we have services, we have activities, we have religiosity. And in the middle of this pandemic, an interesting thing happened, and that is that many churches did not meet as a result of the pandemic. And there was a huge cry for churches to meet again. But with no distinction. No thought is about what are those churches teaching when they meet. Is the gospel being present? Is the word of God going forth? In fact, even in the cry to meet, there wasn't a discussion about how the word of God, the Bible, is still being proclaimed throughout many portions of society. In fact, more people were listening to these messages than before the pandemic. But it was about meeting. It was simply about churches getting together. It was about symbol over substance. People are excited when the Bible shows up in the public arena. People are happy when it's lifted up and it's displayed. But they don't read it. They don't use it. And they don't submit to it. I submit to you that this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 4 is very relevant to us today. Now, don't get me wrong. There are many people who have a sincere, true faith in God. Just as there were a remnant in Israel even at the time that we are studying 1 Samuel chapter 4. There is Samuel. There is Elkanah. There is Eli, to agree. And there are many others. Samuel is going to be greatly used of God. And there are going to be some significant changes in Israel. There are also going to be some significant downturns in Israel's future. But let us not be discouraged by what I've said this morning. But rather, let us act. What can we do? Well, first of all, not be complacent. Not just sit back and say, everything is great, And the church, meaning the entire church, Christianity in America, not the local church, but simply saying, well, the church is in good shape. Let us understand 
the numbers of people that are no longer even associating with Christianity in just four years, 10% lost. Where that's going to be in another eight years. What can we do? We can pray. Secondly, we can turn to God as the ultimate solution to our nation's problems. Not relying upon any other entity other than God. Looking to God, whether it be the coronavirus, whether it be racial and social injustices, whether it be the issue of lawlessness, what is the solution to the needs of America today? I say it's for people to repent. For people to come to a saving relationship to Jesus Christ. For the Holy Spirit to be shed abroad in the hearts of individuals. That is what is going to bring meaning and lasting change to these situations in our nation and in our world. We must return to the scriptures as the sole authority of faith and conduct. Not just to be placed on a shelf or in a picture, but in people's hearts and in people's minds. I rejoice that we have a tremendous amount of religious freedom in America. I'm glad to be able to say on the 4th of July that we are Americans and we enjoy such freedoms of religion that we can proclaim the gospel freely without governmental interference or limitations. Let us not squander that freedom. May we use our right to speak freely to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true God who is really able to set us free. The one who is able to unite his people into one body. The scripture says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male nor female. There is neither bond nor free. But we are all one in Jesus Christ. That is the unity. That is the equality. That is the care for one another that people are longing for. The solution is the gospel. The solution is a heart made right with God. A belief in God can bring healing to our land. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 says this, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will hear their land. It would make all the difference in the world if just the evangelical church, those who profess to be born again, to have made a commitment to Lord Jesus Christ, if just that group could say with one voice that Jesus is the way, the truth, 
and the life, and that no man comes unto the Father but by him. So we don't lose the gospel. On this 4th of July, let us pray that God will do a work in our country and bring us back to a true faith in him. My Sunday school class looked at the Puritans and the establishment of the New England colonies. Oh, that we might go back to the teachings, the roots, the faith of the Puritan heritage. Let us not just venerate the Bible, but proclaim it. Let's pray. Almighty God, we rejoice in your great goodness. We thank you that you are our God. We thank you that we live in the United States of America where there's tremendous freedom. We thank you for the opportunities that are present for each and every one of us. And Lord, there is so much that is available for us to get the word out. There's social media. There's live streaming like we're doing today. There are conversations that we can have with others. Lord, may we give our time and our effort to telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ and his ability to bring healing to our land, his ability to create a oneness among people. The word of God says, thou shalt not kill. Lord, help us to uphold the standards of Scripture and apply them in every realm. Every realm. That we are against the innocent taking of life. Whether that person wears a uniform or doesn't wear a uniform. We are against killing. Lord, help us to have a voice that represents you well. A voice that will point people to the true and living God. A voice that will proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the only one through whom a person can have a relationship to God the Father. Help us this day. Thank you. May we go away rejoicing, renewed, refreshed, and willing to identify with the gospel of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.